welcome to Defan episode number 36. Are you going on live so, yet? Are you going on air yet? Yeah, no. we are. Screw it, we are. You know, you know what you're I doing. <laughs> Look, there, there is like a, at least I told you, right? These two dedicated, too many fans, exactly two. Yeah. So they are, they are online now. and Two hardcore fans. Yes. Yeah, let's get the hardcore. It's, you know, they're knocking on the pub door. Let's open up, you know. They're, they're, they're eager. <laughs> <laughs> okay, clicked on uh, broadcast. So it's going to start. Right, okay. Yeah, I think it should be on now. Yeah. So we we're are live? live. Yes. We're live. Whoa. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, so. Sufficiently dramatic. Oh, hold on. Now we'll st Sorry, I just had to mute the YouTube for a second. <laughs> no, no, Ray, this is an anticlimax. We were all ready to go with the live. <laughs> well, but this is okay. what we were talking about, wasn't it? You know, it's like state again. You know, it's a yeah. total nightmare. The feedback loops. I mean, you know, I got some kind of like, uh, yeah, feedback on a separate state that was being recorded separately. You know, uh -huh. it's like a, like multi-threading. You know, uh -huh. of myself. <laughs> I mean, how so weird we're, is that, you know? That you so can't make this shit problem. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should have our podcast recording bingo. You know, like, can you hear me? No? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Are we live yet? No. I like that idea, actually. Check, 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 check. Everything is checked. Yeah. I mean, chaos at the beginning, okay. you know, that's, that's, it can't get any, can't get any worse then. You know, that's the idea, you know, that we, we kind of open up with total mm -hmm. chaos. And then everything gradually settles down and we get more chaotic at the end. So, you know, there's a kind of, there's a kind of arc to the story, you know? Right. Whole, I like yeah, it. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we come full circle in the end. I, yeah, I like exactly. that we come yeah. back to chaos. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Always, better, always, always, yeah. yeah. Entropy think, is, you know, our middle name. <laughs> we, we end on a cliffhanger. I think it's even worse. I mean, we, we, we start with a lot of chaos and then finally when we're trying to like, oh, this makes some sense. Oh, time, you know, we're done. So mm -hmm. we can't record anymore. So mm -hmm. we go back to the same thing again. Yeah. So every episode we start with this kind of bullshit and then it goes, oh, finally we're talking about something reasonable. Uh, you know, it's two hours already, so let's stop. Be a beautiful solution in the margin. It just doesn't fit. <laughs> exactly. So episode number 36 it is. Um, welcome to the show, uh, Peter. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I would like to um, pronounce your last name, though. Um, yes. How, how do I? Tosanis? Oh, wow. That's very good. Yes, exactly that. How fun. But that sounds Greek, though. That is, is Greek. Greek? Oh. That is Greek. Yes. So you're from Greece. I, my father was from Greece. Um, so okay. I, I, I am officially part Greek. Wow. Yes. Okay. So from that, that's the reason for the whole tower and everything. Okay. Now, now everything is. That's all. It's a, we're, we're already, we're already having insights at this point. No. <laughs> um, so, okay. that's, so yes, that's part, not right. Part of the reason for the tower, but um, also other significance in the name for me. So, um, from the mathematical constant tau, and also yep. from Enso, um, with mm -hmm. with one s, sort of the the um, Japanese concept mm. of circle and so on. So it has mm -hmm. uh, had some significance for me, and I like the sound of the name. Right. Beware. It's a bit of a problem, though. I was just going to say Why, there's a bit of a problem with the open source from Peter now because you should always beware of um, Greeks yes. bearing gifts. Yeah, so. <laughs> Greeks bearing gifts, exactly. Well, I, I feel like there, there needs to be at least some hurdle. You see, you can tell if somebody really wants the library at that point because they've gone to the effort of actually figuring out how to, how to type it in. So if, <laughs> if, they're not, if they're not committed enough at that point, then, you know, so it's, it's a good primary level filter, I think. 
<laughs> so um, let's let's get to the. Um, I think so. You're from well, you're not from Greece, but you're originally from Greece. But right now you're in Berlin, right? Yes. Where, um, so so I was born in um, in Johannesburg in South Africa, um, and I was there for for many years. Then I moved to Thailand, and I was living in the north of Thailand in a, in a city called Chiang Mai uh, for for several years, and most recently in the last year or so in uh, in Berlin. So new, newly in Berlin, especially in Berlin time, one year is not much. <laughs> so what what made you move to these different places, Peter? Was it just like um, a itch to uh, travel, hmm, or was it more than the that? World. So Thailand, Thailand was a bit was a bit random at that time. I just sold my my first company and I wanted to travel. And um, I kind of picked somewhere that I'd heard good things about, but it was it was very very random. I wasn't planning on actually moving there. Mm-hmm. Um, I went there on on vacation, and uh, the intention was to kind of hop around a little bit and explore explore the region. But oddly enough, uh, first place I ended up, which was in Chiang Mai, I just immediately fell in love with the place, and I was. I was so happy and comfortable there that um, I didn't move again. I ended up there and I ended up staying for, for five, six years. And, mm, okay. um, and I made that my home for a while. And that, that was a really, really wonderful, wonderful place. And I, I, I'd, like to go, I'd like to go back. Um, as for the jump from Thailand to Berlin, that was a little bit more also, I'd say, spontaneous. My partner at the time um, was interested in coming to Berlin for, for her work. Um, and I had traveled here once before briefly, and um, I, I liked the look of the place quite a bit, and I for a long time wanted to get into Europe, and there were also some, um, some let's say, family things going on, I had some, some personal reasons as well mm-hmm. for, for wanting to make a change, and at that time, again, it was more or less just jumping in with both feet and, and um, giving, giving it a try. So okay. relatively spontaneous. And are you um, are you doing closure in Berlin? Because we've been to Berlin recently as a bit of a closure hotbed. So is that is that kind of uh, another small like uh, magnet for you as well? The clo- the big closure community in Berlin. Um, so let's say um, sort of is the answer to that. So definitely there is um, as you put it. I think there's a bit of a hotbed of closure here. Um, I am working in closure in Berlin, but that that wasn't the primary draw. I think no, no. Um, I think let's say I'm, I'm fortunate enough, uh, and I think a lot of closure developers are that they they can kind of work remotely very often as well. I think since mm. since the market for closure developers is is relatively small, um, generally speaking, uh, closure roles are are let's say disproportionately often remote. So most of the consulting that I did, for example, was was remote. Um, it just happened to be in this case that that the city coincided with, um, hmm. with let's say, the closure in this case. Uh, but like, like in the case of Chiang Mai, that wasn't that wasn't that wasn't a primary factor. Let's say bringing me here. Right, right, right. Okay. So, how did you get into closure? Let's hmm. talk about your journey into <laughs> my, closure. My journey into closure. Yes. yes. Um, so let me think. Um, so I had this was. Um, Ooh, I don't know. A little bit before closure, closure version one. Um, so way, way back when, when most of the information was just on the on the, the, the Google the Google group, and I'd finished, um, I finished. I think I just sold my my first business, which wasn't wasn't terribly engineering related, and um, I started working on a project, a, a passion project of mine, which 
Um, I've been sort of kicking around ideas for, for, for a very, very long time, and I, I knew that it was going to involve a lot of uh, programming. And at that time, I kind of started just researching what, what programming tools were available at that time. I had a draw to, to Lisp, so I wanted to try, in particular, sort of move, move towards the Lisp language, or at least evaluate those. Um, and I ended up evaluating, uh, I think I looked uh, quite seriously at, at Common Lisp at the time. And I looked at um, a language which Paul Graham was working on at the time called ARC, um, which yep. didn't, didn't really materialize into much. And um, then there was this closure thing, which I had heard nothing about. Was, at that point, I'd heard zero word of mouth about it whatsoever. It just happened to, to pop up when I was searching for, for list uh, variants. And um, what initially drew me was that it ran on the JVM. And um, I started reading, I think, some of the original information that was out there from from rich on sort of some of his views on on things like state and and concurrency and um and some of the interesting let's say experience and and philosophy that went into the language and it started attracting me more and more the, the, the more i dug into it the more it appealed to me and um Anyway, I started actually developing a prototype of the, the product that I was working on in Clojure, and the more I used it, the more it occurred to me that this was the right fit, and in particular that it was a really good fit for for sort of uh, prototyping. Shoot, Craig. So you said you were looking for a Lisp, but what yeah. what what made you look for a Lisp? What why were you looking for a Lisp? Okay, good question. Um, so I think. It's a little bit difficult to turn back. Um, I think, in general, I've been looking for an excuse to try a Lisp because I'd read much about them, and I'd read, I'd read a few books on Lisp, and I kind of tinkered around with Lisp a little bit. But there's there's a very very big difference between reading about something or kind of playing around with it in, sure, in a toy capacity definitely. and actually using it in a in a production yeah. environment. And ultimately, I just wanted. Um, I think that the dominant factor was I just wanted to have an excuse to actually use a list in production to get a feel for what that was like. And this was also at a time... But what say, specifically about the Lisp was drawing you? I mean, because we, we're kind of circling around it a little bit. What, ah, particular, okay, okay. what particular aspects of, of Lisp or of, of you know, forget closure for the moment, but what, yep. what particular aspects of you know, the, the thought around Lisp was... was was making you think, yes, I really want to try that concept rather than sure. Java or whatever else we were using before. Sure, sure. So a few things. Um, Lisp, I think, I think a lot of people are drawn to Lisp because, the, um, because of the, let's say, the air of mystery that it tends to have a little bit. I think, I think it's very <laughs> difficult to confuse the culture around Lisp with the culture around Java, let's say, right? Like Lisp is always, at least the way I perceive it, has always been seen as sort of a hacker's language. And a lot of the old, um, you know, McCarthy papers and things like this, Paul Graham articles on on, on Lisp. Um, a lot of the the materials on Lisp always spoke about Lisp with this kind of reverence, which mm. um, I, I don't at that time anyway. I don't take particularly literally because people often speak about all sorts of things um, in 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 very glowing terms, and I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to actually kind of get my hands dirty with it and see see what it was like in practice. But there seemed to be this promise behind Lisp, right? That that there were some kind of um, there was some kind of enlightenment waiting on the other side of, of sufficient time with Lisp, right? XKCD style, it's a Jedi language, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think for for 
many programmers, that can already be enough to kind of uh, spark their interest. Because when you're mm -hmm. comparing it to alternatives and you see Java or you see other, other languages that maybe were uh, available at the time, um, it appealed to me. And I like the, the, the foundations on, on which it was built. Again, like the Lambda calculus, things like this, the, the concept of macros appealed to me. Um, and in general, philosophically, I like the, the concept of something like, like a list, which is this, this idea that you take very um, basic, uh, primitive concepts that can kind of compose in interesting ways, right? So it's, it's, it's not complex. I guess there's a weird analogy. It's something like the game of Go, right? Which you, where mm -hmm. like you have a simple set of rules underneath and from that can arise sort of mm -hmm. organically a, a deep and interesting um, set of logical constructs. And mm -hmm. for me, that was something that I had definitely gotten the impression that Lisp offered and it, it was enough to get me to sort of put dip my toe in it, as it were. <laughs> and yeah. um, and the, the experience, let's say, reinforced... Um, quickly reinforce it, kind of close the loop quite quickly and, and maybe understand, yes, okay, this is actually, you get what's on the box um, and it is interesting and it is worthwhile. And like anything, there's pros and cons, but definitely there, there are some profound and important ideas here which are, um, which are worth some time and um, which I think if used in the correct way with, with the correct understanding of the trade-offs can, can be important leverage, let's say, if you're trying to get a, a product developed or you're trying to do something interesting. Mm. So how did that, what, what were you doing before that? I mean, because you mentioned, you know, various languages, but what, because some, I mean, I, I take your point that it was a kind of spiritual journey to some extent, you know, that you were looking for, a, you know, the Jedi sort of, uh, the, the the language of the, uh, you know, the ancients, let's say. Um, mm -hmm. But also, I guess to some extent, you must have been feeling some pain, or you know, feeling like there was something that that the current languages or the current environment that we're using couldn't quite deliver. There, there was some unrest in your mind, yes. which drove you to this other place. You know? Yes. So um, I think that's that's a good question. The answer is, I actually tend to be quite practical about these things. I think ultimately, you can more or less build anything with anything, right? If you're if you're sufficiently sure. dedicated stubborn. Um, the thing maybe that was missing for me in other languages was something that is in some way not important and is in some way really, really important. And that was um, joy. Um, right. <laughs> so I started programming when I was when I was really young and I started with uh, Borland Turbo Pascal, um, I think 7.0, something like that as a blue IDE and the help file and the rest of it. And um, I, at that time, the first time I was exposed to programming and I, I kind of taught myself and I just used to write little games and things like this, I, I had a particular fascination in the learning process of that, that once I started using programming more kind of as a, as a, in a professional capacity, that joy had kind of gone away. And I started seeing the tools mm. and the languages more as a means to an end. And closure and Lisp and these things, they, they, uh, they kind of reignited a little bit for me the some of the passion that I felt the first time I was introduced to programming as a child, and the first mm -hmm. time kind of the light went on, and I thought, "Wow, this is really neat. I can I can I can express ideas here in a really interesting way, um, mm -hmm. and I I feel like I have power, and I feel like I I I'm not constrained by the language. I'm constrained by my own my own capacity to kind of um, let's say push against the boundaries uh, of of what mm -hmm. what let's say, what, what my creativity allows. And um, I guess that's maybe a long-winded way of saying 
the joy was something that was missing in, in a lot of the other things. And it's something that I, I suspect that I might find in the direction of Lisp, and I did. And ultimately, Closure, I think, for me, offered something even more than a Lisp. Um, sort of Lisp was, was what got me in the door with Closure. That was kind of, like I would put it, was sort of one of the things on, on the box that kind of attracted me. Um, but actually, ultimately, the thing that ended up paying dividends and kept my interest in, in closure specifically uh, over so many years was more than just that it's a list, but actually some of the specific uh, design aesthetics and semantics in the language that I think were, were largely a result of, of Rich and his particular views on things and the way mm -hmm. that these views have been kind of been distilled into the essence of the language um, in a way that you can actually feel. And that sometimes, like when, when somebody approaches closure for the first time, they're often approaching it, you know, because of the STM or because of the JVM or because it's a list, things like this, right? For for things that are easy to understand. Um, but actually the thing that for me makes the language so powerful and so elegant and so so lastingly beautiful and, and interesting is actually a lot of the more nuanced stuff underneath. Um, like I say, pointing to sort of Rich's, Rich's um, design and, and conceptual aesthetic, which kind of permeates the language and those those things I think are almost maybe uniquely um, to be had in closure or at least aren't 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 often so easily apparent in um, in other languages. Does that kind of answer the question? It definitely answers the question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty comprehensively, I think. We we can come on to like some of the more detailed stuff and some of the kind of the, I mean, I think you're right. There were there. I mean, we wouldn't be both here. I think if we, we wouldn't all still be here if we didn't think there was some pleasure to be had by using the language, um, which is a kind of weird thing because I think you're right. There is some, there is some, there is some pleasure for sure in using it. You know, and it, it can be like a professional um, pleasure, but also a pure pleasure. You know, um, and I think that's definitely unusual. I, I've not really felt that in other programming languages, also. Um, but there's also a few, there's a few rough corners as well. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> let's not be... be a nice advertisement for closure. Closure gives you pleasure. <laughs> but it's actually yes. true though. I mean, you know, uh, of I'm, course. Sure, I'm sure, I'm, I guess people who are doing Haskell when they're, you know, when their types compile and all this kind of stuff, I think they're probably very pleased, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's some, there's definitely some pleasure in other languages. I'm not denying that, you know. Yeah, but, that's um, true. I think it's, it's, it. It, it comes from the you know small surprises or some some things that you that you thought like they were really difficult and then you get into this new language and then suddenly they they click and then you feel really nice mm -hmm. because I, I haven't I think that the, I, I agree with you Gray completely that you know there there aren't enough languages that give you this kind of uh, feeling mm -hmm. because re recently I was playing with Rust and and of course you know the first three four chapters are exactly like C and I was like what the hell am I writing you know this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And then, the, and then once you get into the concurrency thing, you're like, wow, it is C level concurrency, and then it can catch like race conditions and everything at the compile mm -hmm. time. That's like, this mm -hmm. is nice. So there is just one selling point. But then again, I feel really, you know, dirty writing that kind of code with, without any parentheses. You know, now I have this buffer <laughs> around me in my code now. I, I feel safe and secure and nice <laughs> around the Lisp now. And then if I have to write the free floating C shit, I was like, this is weird. <laughs> But look, one one thing which I, I do want to say, which which I, I feel kind of compelled to add, is that I I think that especially in terms of of things like pleasure, right? It's inherently subjective. 
And sure, I, sure, sure. I think in general, we have a tendency in our industry for getting into this mindset that my language is better than your language, or mm. you're using your language, therefore you're stupid, or well, how could you possibly yeah. be using this language? It's, it's shit. Um, and that's kind of a human thing. It's, it's sort of a natural thing to do. But I, I think um, I, I just want to make the point that, that, you know, like you mentioned yourself, right? Pro closure itself has pros and cons from my perspective. Even, even when I'm using it, there's, there's aspects of it that, that I'm, I'm not too happy with. Mm. Um, but ultimately, I think the tactile feel that someone gets from a language and what they're particularly looking for from a language and what ends up stimulating that sense of joy or not. Um, I think is ultimately subjective, and I think it's ultimately also a question of, of fit, right? What is the particular problem you're trying to solve, and how close is the language to that particular, um, to that model, right? And I think in general, certain languages maybe have more of a flexibility to, to conform in an organic way to more different kinds of models. So some languages might be quite restricted in the sets, sets of things in which they're, they're well applied. Um, but definitely there's subjectivity and definitely there's a matter of fit. And I think ultimately what you do with the particular tools you have uh, matter a lot more than the tools that you're using. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that Matt's, for instance, specifically designed Ruby to be pleasure, to be, to be a programmer's joy, From, you know, yeah. and that, that was his goal, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And I think many people, you know, you, you look at, I've never been to a Ruby conference, but I've seen some shows, you know, and people seem very happy there, you know, and I've definitely read enough blog posts where people are, you know, very positive. And I've been to a few JavaScript conferences where people are incredibly happy with the language, you know. Mm -hmm. so, so I totally agree, Pete. I mean, you know, it's definitely very subjective and it's not about, you know, my language is better than yours. It's it's what you do with it. And you can get me you can get a lot of pleasure out of Weird languages, that's for sure. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. like brain. Fuck. I think as long as you're writing in brain fuck or what is the other one called Mal Malbogle or something Malbogle, something like that. Those are, yeah, those are specifically I mean, made to give you pain. So okay. there were a couple of languages which are specifically for for the pain. Well, some people yeah. might enjoy that too. People <laughs> not first to judge. People write yes. poetry in Flemish, you know. So ah, there you go. <laughs> I didn't pull. But is, is, is that is that pain for for the for the author or for the reader? I'm not sure. <laughs> I think it's like it's like lisp. It's a you know it's a, it's a required it's a it's an acquired taste. <laughs> okay, good answer. Okay, so let's let's get into some of the because you you are a prolific open source contributor and you know you have so many libraries available and and especially some of them are probably used everywhere in every language maybe so. Of course, we can't. I don't think we have enough time to get into every of these things. But there are three particular things I think uh, we'd like to highlight. Uh, mm -hmm. One is Timber, of course, the the logging library, mm -hmm. and second one is Carmine. I'm I'm really interested in your design decisions behind Carmine because I think this is one of the first libraries where I saw, wow, macros make sense here. This is this mm -hmm. is wonderfully written uh, library, and and I learned a lot by just reading your code. And mm -hmm. and, and then of course the center, which is like the whole. Um, you know, the front end, back end, uh, real time stuff. So mm -hmm. which one should we start with? Maybe Timber? Shoot, as you like. So can, can you give us a, because you, usually we, we go through different um, uh, libraries and some of the people who are listening, they're not familiar with them. So mm -hmm. uh, maybe if you give a quick um, idea about what this library is about and what okay. is the problem that it's trying to solve, that'll be nice. Gotcha. 
So um, Timber is a logging library, uh, logging library for closure, and it is all closure, meaning it doesn't lean um, lean against any particular Java logging framework of any kind. So out the box, you get uh, full-featured logging, including things like namespace filtering and logging levels and uh, support for different appenders and middleware and all sorts of things um, through pure closure without interrupt with any any particular Java, Java logging or Java logging configuration in particular. Yeah, but this is also for closure script, right? Because you you made it using CLJX, and so any particular reason why you're still with CLJX but not moving to the official uh, CLJC stuff? Mm -hmm. um, so largely just a case of um, being a little bit uh, slow to make breaking changes, right? So mm -hmm. um, the, the motivation to switch to CLJC is not uh, extremely is not very strong. Um, basically, it's it's the motivation to switch to closure closure one seven. Um, and at the time, and this was some time ago. At the time, um, the last time I evaluated this, my general feeling was what we get in exchange for switching to closure uh, one seven as a minimum dependency was not worth the um, making that a requirement on the library consumers. And in general, one of the things that I really appreciate about closure and that I I, I try usually unsuccessfully to um, kind of offer in, in my library code is, is uh, backward compatibility when possible and in general a sense of stability because usually my libraries, I'm using them in production applications and I know a lot of other people are too. And if your logging library breaks because you know somebody decided to improve some feature or, or uh, bump some dependency and you're just trying to get your job done or trying to make your project work, it's not a lot of fun. Um, so yeah. in general, I think there's an economic trade-off um, figuring out when to do that. And at the time, last I evaluated, there wasn't a strong incentive to, to bump. And I, I polled on Twitter, and there were a number of people who were still using older versions of Clojure. So I stuck mm -hmm. at that um, with, uh, uh, CLJX. CLJX. But um, yeah. almost certainly, it's it's probably about time to make the jump to CLJC. Um, yeah. It's it's about it's about time now because I think most people have have migrated to one seven. Mm -hmm. There's one eight. There's one nine. Does that answer so, your question? Um, because this is, yeah, of course. Um, so this can, is one of the libraries, ask, which is- Can I just ask yeah, one sure. question? It was a bit confusing to me, actually, in your mm -hmm. answer there, was about versioning. If you make mm -hmm. a version with CLJC, um, mm -hmm. I don't know what your current version is, but let's call it 8.3. You make a version 9 with CLJC. How are you going to break people? I'm con a little bit confused there. Um, so if I switch to, let me think about this. If I switch to CLJC, if I switch to Clojure 1.7 as a minimum dependency, you're talking about making a new a new version of Timber? I assume you would do. Ah, okay. So not breaking in the sense that um, people's current version is going to break, but generally speaking, I have a limited amount of time. So if I switch the the sort of base, uh, the master branch to Closure One Seven or whatever it is, right, most right. of the work is going there. Hotfixes is going there. Um, yeah. My main focus is going there, which means essentially it makes the previous version end of life. Okay. Um, so that, then I'm forced into this. I'm forced into the situation either if important hotfixes come out, either to maintain both branches, um, which is not really something that I, I can reasonably do. Because honestly, if I if I had that kind of time, I'd rather publish more more code. Um, yeah. So it it kind of just pushes me then into a situation where either I'm leaving a branch to kind of end of life, or I'm being forced to put more time into maintaining two branches. And like I say, I've got nothing against that if there's a strong motivation to do it. Um, and sometimes that might be the case. 
In this case, last time I checked, there weren't any particular benefits from switching to 1.7 for timber, right? So people wouldn't have experienced any particular clear benefit to the upgrade there. Um, so there wasn't there wasn't a strong incentive to incur any costs at that time. Yeah. So uh, I was I was about to ask like because this is this is how did the library evolve? Because um, was was it plainly uh, closure initially, and then later you started using closure script? Yep. And um, the the other um, question is is basically a two part question, obviously. And then mm-hmm. <laughs> the the other question is um, because logging doesn't come to mind as the first thing mm-hmm. when you're trying to do cross platform on on JVM and on JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So what what kind of challenges did you did you face during this one? Okay, one sec. Um, so first question, um, if I understood correctly, you're asking like how the library came to be. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, so when I started, like I mentioned, when I started using Closure was kind of pre-Closure 1.0 days. And at that time, I think um, it's possible I probably had some of the largest Closure production applications um, in production. This was like way back when, and I, I had some large applications at that time. And uh, I was constantly running into odd, all sorts of little odds and ends that weren't quite working in Clojure or like rough rough edges in Clojure that maybe other people hadn't encountered so much because, I, I don't know, maybe people weren't working at that scale or they didn't have um, like production applications at that point. Um, one of the things that I ran into at that time was just logging. Um, so obviously you can log with, with Java and that's, that's perfectly idiomatic, I think, and a lot of people actually prefer to do that. And certainly if, you, if you're working in some sort of an environment where you're going to be interrupting the Java logging anyway, um, that might still make sense to do. In any case, at that time, a lot of the closure um, products that I were that I was building were pure closure and um, developing some kind of little logging library that was just pure closure. At that time, was you know like 120 lines of code for what my needs were, and it was really simple. And writing 120 lines of code was massively less effort and complexity actually than trying to figure out the mess of the, the Java logging stuff at that point, which I was not familiar with. Um, so it was literally just a, a, a case of reaching for, by Rich's definition in this case, what was easier for me. It was easier for me to implement the Java log. It was easier for me to implement a logging and closure than to figure out the, the Java logging stuff at that point. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then as these things go, it kind of grew organically. Um, and you mentioned actually, so so Timber, Timber, which is on version four, and, and Carmine, which is on version three, um, I think both. Um, were some of the first sort of, um, at least the, their their original versions were some of the first um, closure libraries that I've written, and they kind of grew organically as my needs grew as I was working on my own yeah. projects or, or for client uh, client projects. And at some point, I kind of reached out into front end stuff or cross platform stuff and closure script, and it occurred to me that in fact most of the interesting work um, is inherently cross platform. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So for, for for logging on JVM or in JavaScript, you, you asked like, was there a lot of effort or something? Were there a lot of differences? Well, yeah. the actual surface area for the interrupt that you're concerned with is quite small. Um, mm-hmm. the, the 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 surface area for interrupt is basically the stuff that actually puts stuff out, right? So your appenders that are that are writing something. Um, most of the rest of it is actually inherently cross-platform, right? Because you're dealing at the compiler level, so it's stuff like um, uh, elision for for logging calls that you don't want to run, or it's 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 uh, it's pure closure code, right? So um, yeah. making the jump to to JavaScript was not was not terribly difficult. 
Um, mm. One could argue, let's say, uh, and I probably would argue this, um, that if I'd originally have had the idea from day one to actually make a cross-platform, I may have made sort of slight tweaks in the design here and there, um, mm. just, just to make the, the, let's say, the shared API slightly more um, uh, po polished. Um, for for the cross-platform application, but in this case, I think it was it was good enough. And like I said, we kind of grew into it organically, and it, it served the purpose. So it it okay. Um, so moving moving on to the next one, uh, of course. I mean, this is um, uh, Carmine is um, uh, a Redis client, uh, client for Redis, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how how did you design this thing? Can you can you explain like you know how how it works? Because this this if I understand correctly, Redis guys publish their uh, their protocol, their uh, whole thing as a JSON file, mm -hmm. and then you take it and then, so I think it's better you explain it, how, how it, sure. it works actually. Um, so so Redis, uh, Redis is awesome. I, I like Redis a lot actually. Redis, Redis is one of my favorite pieces of technology overall. And um, again, it's not perfect. There's trade-offs in it like, like everything else. Um, but I really, 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 I have, it has a, a, an important place in my heart. Um, I'm very fond <laughs> of it and I, and I like the, um, the author um, a lot. He's actually one of the one of the programmers that I that I um, I take a fair bit of inspiration from. Anyway, so um, I had a lot of um, a lot of applications where Redis was a good fit. Um, I took a look at some of the other libraries that we had at the time. Um, I don't actually recall very concretely because there were several other closure uh, closure yeah. um, Redis clients at that time. I don't actually exactly recall what the issues were. Some of them. I remember for sure didn't work well in production, so they had issues with um, strange things like memory leaks because they were using the Java client underneath, or some of them would would break with large payloads or under high load um, in general, or there were things with connection pool issues. There were minor little odds and ends that were that I was running into issues with, and um, at first I was trying to patch the problems with these other clients, um, and again it just turned out at the time my motivation was very. Specific. Uh, I, I had products that I wanted to develop as quickly as possible, and I was looking for the quickest ways to actually get to production on those products. And it happened to be again that sometimes trying to figure out what the issues were with the other clients and fix them in practice was taking longer than just writing something myself for for the client. And mm -hmm. so I just went sort of with the path of, of least resistance, which in this case was a, a new client. Um, so you asked how how the client works. So this is something mm -hmm. that's that's quite neat. Um, but it, it actually wasn't my idea originally. There was there was another gentleman. I can't recall his name, but it's it's in the commit history, um, and and I think it's in the doc string in the the, the namespace. Who cottoned on this idea of taking the Redis um, JSON command list and parsing the command list, and from the parsed command list. So this is for people who are not familiar. Basically, Redis has has a really nicely structured API, and you can kind of see all the all the um, the command documentation online, and the command documentation is populated by this JSON file, right? So there's this JSON file saying like, these are the different Redis commands, these are the number of arguments it takes, these are the optional arguments, da, 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 da. this is the doc string, this is the version it was, it was added into. So all of this is actually under revision control as part of the Redis project, uh, the commands for JSON, something like that. Um, yeah. Anyway, so somebody, somebody with another closure client had this idea of, um, basically downloading the JSON, parsing the JSON, and with that, then defining all of the public API and yeah. doing it in such a way where you actually get the benefits of the, the structural information. So for example, if you're in Carmine and you look at whatever, the ping command, right? 
and you yeah. do doc, doc string on ping. You get the doc string from Reddit. And that's yeah. not actually, that's not implemented somewhere, somebody typing out, you know, def and ping, whatever. Um, it's done automatically based on the command stack. Um, and it's a fairly simple, it's a fairly simple, small application of, of macros, but it's a nice example of, of where something like a macro um, can be handy because it makes the whole thing um, very easy to maintain. If there's a new command that's published, you just update the command uh, JSON and you run the thing and it spits it out. In this case, the current version, it spits it out into Eden. Um, and with the Eden, it will define all of the, all of the, the functions and, and things. Um, yeah, I think this is this is one of the neatest uses of code producing code sort of thing. You know, like code generating code, code writing code sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Because I, I was looking through different different um, uh, libraries, and I was like, now now I'm like, okay, you know what? Every uh, database people or everybody should publish their spec like you know, like this. Mm -hmm. Then we can generate APIs so quickly, mm -hmm. or so elegantly, not not quick, but much more. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there, there high is fidelity no as well. The high fidelity, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it happens. Uh, it, it happens that it's a good fit as well for Redis because Redis happens to be implemented in this way where there is a very very large API and the commands are all more or less. Um, I don't want to say orthogonal exactly, but they're all just independently implemented yeah. like this, right? So if you were going to implement a, li a client library for some other database. It's very likely that probably if you were doing a closure one, you would want to kind of fine tune the API enclosure for some reason, right? So like, yeah. for example, there's um, there's a Datomic, uh, DynamoDB um, library as well, which which isn't used very much, called Faraday, um, mm -hmm. which which I authored. And there there's a number of tweaks on top of the underlying library because it made sense to make those kinds of tweaks for the fact that this is yeah. closure library. And in Redis's case, it's an unusually easy and, and sort of natural fit for just, yeah. you know, define this function, define this function, define this mm. function, because that's the only way that you would want to do it. It, it just makes sense. Mm. Just going back originally, I mean, I know you kind of, uh, we sort of skipped over it, but you said that you really liked Redis and, um, you know, I, I appreciate that too. I was wondering if there was something specific about uh, about redis versus memcache for instance that mm -hmm. that made you you know that, that made you think that this was special or different what, okay. what is it about redis that that inspired you um so redis there's a lot that i like about redis um some of it is quite subjective so some of it is just I like the aesthetic uh, of Redis. So what I mean by that Subjective is, is good, Peter. We're, we're just, <laughs> it's an opinion well, show, you, it's okay. <laughs> I'll give you both. I'll, I'll give you the subjective and I'll, I'll give you what I think is, is slightly more objective. So um, subjectively, like I say, there's just some aspects of the design philosophy that, that I enjoy. I like how Salvatore runs the, the, the product. I like how he does design. And I find that um, his manner of thinking, like Rich, Rich's manner of thinking does with closure. His kind of percolates through the design of the, the software in a way that you as a user can actually kind of tangibly feel and that I appreciate. Um, objectively, I would say um, I really appreciate how close to the metal Redis is. So I like thinking in terms of data structures, right? And this is something that I think closure tends to, tends to encourage as well, is just thinking in terms of data and thinking in terms of data structures. And in general, I find one of the things that I, I dislike about some databases in general um, is it's often quite opaque, right? You send your data to the database and it's up to the database to figure out how to structure this stuff and how to index it and exactly what data structures are underneath. Maybe you know, maybe you don't, maybe it's part of a public API, maybe it isn't. 
Um, but ultimately, you're 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 leaning a lot on the database to kind of make reasonable decisions about how to store and represent and access stuff that you need. And one of the things that I like about Redis a lot, so I, I often use it in cases, not just as um, so like you can use it as, as as an alternative to memcache something like that. But I think that where it's more interesting is just as a as a data structure server, right? If you need a list, you need a, a list with certain specific semantics. You need a, a sorted set, right? It's got these really, really interesting data structures with an API that's very, um, very transparent about the cost of operations against the particular data structures. That by itself, I think, already actually puts it in a unique position where, when you want a specific data structure, and in my in my line of work and a lot of the stuff I've done, I often wanted a specific data structure. Nothing beat that. That was just amazing to be able to say, I want this and I want that, and I want a I want a hash over here, and I want a sorted set, and I have very particular reasons for wanting these particular things. And it's allowed me in a lot of cases to sort of refactor, let's say, applications that were based on other databases and dramatically improve performance. Um, not because Redis was fast, right, which is often kind of thrown around, but because Redis allowed a conceptual remodeling of the idea in terms of the actual underlying data structures that were necessary, and that allowed sort of the algorithmic complexity to be drastically reduced. And I've had cases where, again, we had we had production applications that needed to be um, the performance needed to be improved, and just switching from this concept of kind of I'm throwing my blobs at the database and it's going to figure out how to create this stuff back to me. Um, to look, what actual data structures do we need here? And maintaining them ourselves and taking responsibility for that and improving performance in the system, several orders of magnitude, because just having that, that ability to think in those, those terms and to be very specific about it. Um, so that's, that's what originally got me liking Redis. Then at some point, there were some additions, um, including the addition of the Lua scripting um, in Redis. And yeah. for me, that took it to another level. Once Already, it was very useful, and again, in the right circumstances. I don't want to suggest it's a, it's a magic bullet for anything, but in the uses where it's a fit, Redis was very useful. Then the addition of the Lewis scripting, I think, took it to um, another level because it allowed. So, for people who are not familiar, sorry, um, basically, Redis allows you to build uh, or write little Lewis scripts um, on top of its core data structures and actually send scripts to the client, uh, excuse me, send scripts from the client to the server and execute atomically the script. And this allows you to do all kinds of interesting things in a really, really performant way um, in a relatively simple language, but again, really close, really close to the metal in a way that, that when it makes sense can be awesome. And again, this often might not make sense, but in those cases where you want to be able to send something to a server and say, look, I'm sending you this thing and I want you to perform 100 operations against these different data sets and please take an intersection of this and this and put it there in this map only if it is. It is amazing. And again, I've had applications where massive amounts of logic that involved locking and all kinds of coordination between different databases and things could be dramatically simplified through the use of something like the, this Lua engine in Redis. Um, and the results were just so much faster and so much cleaner and so much more tangible. Um, because again, it just it gives you transparency into what's happening. So I guess for people who have, um, like I do, sort of a, an, aesthetic, an aesthetic in general that they like to understand what's going on and kind of miss the days where you're sort of kind of doing your assembler and you know what's in your buffers and then you know where your cache <laughs> line is. Um, I, I I kind of for languages, I feel like the value of that is is in general 
decreasing, right? Because various reasons is one conversation. But in terms of data storage, I actually tend to lean more in that direction still of liking liking to understand exactly how the stuff is is stored. Um, then more most recently, Redis has also introduced um, things like the uh, module feature, which now gives you kind of like a binary binary level way of doing doing some of these like extensions. Um, and again, when it's a fit, boy, it's, it's when that's what you want, it's just it's 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 great. It's unbeatable. So, do you um, think this is um, do you think this is like the revenge of stored procedures? Because yeah. uh, you know, stored hmm. procedures kind of like were a dirty word ten years ago, I guess. You know, but yeah. um, with Oracle and a lot of the databases, because they kind of tied you into a specific language mm -hmm. for that database and i guess people like datomic and and you know as you say redis and other people now as you know and couchdb and mongodb they're all kind of back to store procedures big time you know yeah so in general um this concept of dirty word i think is interesting excuse me because i think that it's something that again our industry let's say has some some growing up to do um in terms of just evaluating things on a case-by-case -case basis. We, we have this tendency as an industry as a whole to say, okay, this is currently the mindset. This is what's good. Object-oriented programming is fantastic. Mm. Everything that's not object-oriented is terrible and you're an idiot for thinking it. Or go-to is great. <laughs> no, go-to is terrible. You shouldn't have go-to. Functional programming is the best thing ever. If you're not using functional programming, you're stupid. Um, and I think that... But that is true, though. <laughs> on, on this podcast, yes. Yeah, on, the, on this. No, no, I'm, uh, on this I'm joking. I'm joking. Of course, Peter. Yeah. Um, so, like, I think in general, uh, I tend to have a, an automatic sort of suspicion when people say things uh, strongly, as they have done with things like store, store procedures. I yeah. think that very often criticism of things comes from fashion more than a deep understanding of the the semantic pros and cons that the thing offers. And mm -hmm. I think that. You can do good programming with PHP, or you can do shitty programming with Clojure. And I think that you can make stored procedures work, and I think you can make them dreadful. It depends on the context. It depends what your objectives are. It depends what the economic factors are and the constraints. Um, like I say, Redis, Redis is, um, is dear to my heart because it's so transparently what it is, right? Like in some cases, it's absolutely not a good fit, uh, but you always be relatively transparent to know what those what the cases are where it's a good fit because it just gives you exactly what it says it's going to give you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that when it makes sense, I think it's a very good fit. Uh, but I, I think that it's sort of a deep question uh, or a deeper question maybe we don't have time for right now, but it's a certainly an interesting one is how one actually evaluates in general what kinds of ideas make sense logically, right? Like something conceptually like a stored procedure, what actually the pros and cons of that from, from like a semantic, from like a conceptual semantics point of view. Um, and I, I think that these are actually really interesting questions that sometimes get skimmed over because people have a knee-jerk reaction to say, I read that article that said that it's bad, or I read that article that said microservices is good, so we should use microservices. Well, I think we've got five more minutes. I mean, you know, we're maybe going to spend an hour on it, but I think I don't, let's, not, let's not stop there. I mean, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. because I think what, what, one of the reasons why people were, the tip of me, okay, I'll just kind of give you the, the, the I mean, I'm sure you're aware of them, but I'll give you kind of like a, a for, for everyone who isn't, I'll give a quick rundown of some of the negatives of store procedures. And the mm -hmm. typical reasons behind store procedures negativity is A, there's some sort of limit on the language, 
Um, mm -hmm. In other words, there's some DSL by a database vendor, and mm -hmm. people didn't like that for whatever reason. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the limitations of expressivity and stuff like that. And I, like you say, there can be still good reasons to choose that. The bigger mm -hmm. reason probably is the lack of transparency and the tooling and all those kind of things where you, know, you have to buy into the tooling of a particular vendor to get the advantages or to see, to have visibility on the, the processing of a particular stored procedure. And then, you know, of course, you're getting a lock-in aspect, but let's, let's ignore that because that's, that's, you know, that's obvious. So mm -hmm. I think those are the two big things, expressivity and kind of like lack of visibility. Mm -hmm. um, so those, those are obviously very important things. And I can't say that they're, um, how do I put this? So I think that the important thing in general when evaluating any particular thing is trying to understand what are the actual constraints of the particular problem that you're working with and what are the hard parts. Right. So it happens, for example, sometimes that um, you would hypothetically acknowledge, let's say, that the expressivity of the language that you're being offered inside your database is not particularly powerful, or it might happen that there is vendor lock-in, or it might happen that there's there's other, uh, I think, valid valid criticisms also for for stored procedures that one one could level, and. Ultimately, it's up to the people involved, right, engineers and business, mm -hmm. uh, both to try to figure out actually what are the pros and cons that we get from this in this particular case and mm -hmm. what actually makes sense. Because sometimes it will happen that you say, look, these are particular uh, kinds of debt, let's say, that we don't want to take on, or it's something actually where the overall set of trade-offs is, um, is positive compared to other reasonable alternatives that are available at the moment. And again, just giving sort of some anecdotes. Um, so... Definitely, um, Redis scripting, you have some of these same kinds of problems. Um, for example, if you're writing your script now in Lua, right? We're choosing to use Clojure and not Lua. Clojure is more expressive, Clojure is more powerful. Um, also, let's say um, you've got some issues of, um, let's say your tooling, like you were saying, right? You've got this, this code and where is it being set up? Um, how, what kinds of tools do you have available for testing and debugging, things like this? So all of these are costs. The question is, what are you getting in exchange for it? And whether that is worth paying or not, again, is, is purely a function of um, what are the bottlenecks in your case and what are the viable alternatives? So I've seen cases where someone was using Redis and they were implementing a lot of important logic in the application, but because the application was distributed and um, so closure applications, because, the, because the, the application was distributed, trying to implement this logic on the uh, client side, on the closure side, involved a significant amount of concurrency management, right? So it was figuring out sort of locking and distribution of information and timing things. And um, it was, it was a solved, um, it, it was a reasonable solution. And it allowed, let's say, uh, the bulk of the, the, the problem to be expressed in closure. But because of the location of where it's being expressed, right? In this case, in the client instead of the server, you sometimes incur other kinds of costs. For example, in this case, conceptual costs due to the fact that the uh, the, distri the distributed architecture, at least some parts of it now need to be dealt with at the, at the application layer, at the client layer, mm -hmm. where moving some of the stuff to a Lua script, even though the language wasn't as expressive and even though the tooling was not as nice, allowed let's say, massively complex, um, like logically complex distributed code to be squashed into something that was actually relatively short and simple for Lua. Mm -hmm. 
And in that case, one of the, let's say, the, uh, the economic constraints as well was the objective was performance. And switching from this kind of multi-back-and-forth um, solution with the distributed thing from, from client stomach composure to something that could be done just on the server side, directly within the server, again, resulted in, in maybe an order of magnitude better performance. And ultimately, that's what the customer in that case cared about. And the complexity, uh, let's say the, cost, the other costs that were incurred, were incurred happily. So I think it's it's always a matter of, of trade-offs and what you're actually trying to achieve. I don't think that there's a right or wrong solution. I think it's very much a case of what what are the actual objectives and what are the viable alternatives. Uh, but in general, I like I think that it's an interesting option to have, right? The, the concept mm -hmm. of being able to run things on the DB um, on, at the server side, I think certainly opens the door for some kind of interesting options. And like I say, sometimes it's a dreadful idea, but it's one of the things that I like about Redis that it it uh, gives you that option and in a in a particularly nice way against a particularly powerful set of basic primitives. In this case, it's, it's basic data structures. I think it's, it's a good fit because there's a lot that you can do with these, these data structures. By the way, do you mean to use Redis like a, just like a memcached sort of replacement or do you actually use it like a full-fledged uh, database where, I don't know, uh, stored mm -hmm. to the disk when, uh, when shit hits the ceiling sort of thing? Yeah. Um, so you, it, primarily, the first case is usually what's recommended. So, as, as some sort of temporary thing, um, just because the defaults are, the, the, so again, the design of Redis is very specific, um, acknowledging that there's different trade-offs to be made in the ways that we write software. And Redis, uh, more or less, has taken a clear, uh, a clear direction, which is to generally. Um, de-emphasize things like uh, the persistence, the reliability, right? You wouldn't you wouldn't put very valuable data in Redis usually yeah. unless you've got it yeah. very specifically configured because the defaults, let's say, are not are not slanted towards giving you very high reliability in, in sort of the database mm -hmm. sense. Um, however, again, it depends on your it depends on your use case. Um, I think that saying that you shouldn't use Redis ever as a primary data store, I think is just as silly as saying anything else without condition, right? It depends very much on the circumstances. And I've seen plenty of cases where, again, there were projects I was involved with, where the constraints were things like time to market or cost or performance, and the data was not valuable. And the thing is, if you have data, I don't know, from your you know, uh, kitten photo application that's going back and forth, and you need it to be really fast because tons of people are using it. But if you lose information on 10 kittens, it's not the end of the world. Something like yeah. Redis as a primary data store can actually work. You just need to understand exactly what the trade-offs are, what, what semantics you need, and how are you trying to mitigate some of the downsides, right? Because you would need to be very clear on exactly what are the risks to your data, at what, at what time do you incur those risks, and more or less what are your options for trying to mitigate them, assuming you need to. So it, it very much depends. Hmm. But okay. I, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I yeah, yeah, rule of, it out course, of course. Okay. So um, I think we should, um, before we turn this into Redis podcast, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you should really go into one of these MongoDB podcasts and then you know, talk about Redis. That I, I have, I've used MongoDB before. <laughs> um, so let's, let's talk about uh, the, uh, one of the uh, biggest libraries that, that you released, uh, Center, uh, mm -hmm. or Cent. I don't know how you pronounce it Center. Can, can you give us some idea about uh, you know what what that library is about mm -hmm. um and and its use case and uh, how you built it yep um so for folks that aren't aware sente is basically just um so i kind of describe it as a as a real-time 
how do I describe it? Real-time uh, communications, web communications for closure and closure script. So essentially it's um, web sockets, client server mm -hmm. for closure that falls back to Ajax uh, and okay. has a number of other, let's say quality of life things that I, I found useful in, in real production applications. So for example, these days uh, I, had a, I had a question, um, an interview with someone just the other day and, and uh, the question came up, why would you use something like Sensei today instead of just working directly at WebSockets? And mm -hmm. the honest answer is, so when I wrote Sensei, at that time, I had a, a product that I was working on where I had measured that a significant portion of my user base was not WebSocket ready, right? At least mm -hmm. not practically through proxies or whatever, there were issues and WebSockets weren't available. So in my case, it made sense to spend some effort to make sure that I could support those, those people in a graceful way. Now, is that still the case today? Probably not, right? The, the, the number of people who are not successfully able to use WebSockets at all is probably a certainly decreasing number at the yeah. moment. But some of the reasons why something like Sente might still be interesting anyway is because there's more to actually building a successful production let's say real-time communication system, client server, then just let's say the underlying protocol for sending the message of a WebSocket or whatever. There's a, a bunch of other little things. Sometimes it's things like timeouts, it's things like your your general API, things like um, keep alive. It's, it's unsexy stuff yeah. that sometimes these things are, are important, right? If somebody's driving through a tunnel and they lose a message, uh, what happens with that message? Or what happens if I'm sending an important message and it's big and I, Whatever. So there's all kinds of things that you can already do at a library site to try and, let's say, maximize the use of bandwidth, which can sometimes be important on, on mobile by like mm -hmm. sort of packing things together or doing things in such a way where uh, I'm going to retry certain things in certain cases when it's logically, logically sensible to do so. So basically, it gave me a layer to operate one higher than sort of the web the web protocol layer, but just to say, I have actual applications that I want to build. And for these applications, I would like to be thinking at the application level, because it's already hard enough to build a real-time application, even using something like Sensei. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things you have to kind of be aware of, and you, you definitely have to design for it at, at the application level. Um, and and it, so it kind of forces a shape on your application a little bit, sort of the notion that you're going to be working with this real-time stuff. But I wanted to minimize the amount that that mm -hmm. uh, that intrusion into the application space happened. And so doing something like Sente allowed me to kind of capture some of the complexity, let's say, at a, at a middle layer, which was a little bit higher than the protocol, but a little bit below the application. And say so a lot of the stuff between applications is kind of similar. And um, okay. again, a lot of the work that I've done is is like prototyping a lot of different applications or, or doing um doing like lots of different especially um web applications for for clients and having just a reasonable default platform on which i could build a wide range of different applications was was useful so that's why i built Santa, and then at some point i just released it because i figured it okay. might might be useful for others hmm. does that answer so, the question um, yeah yeah of course um so it's 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 basically sort of a middleware, right? Because it's it's not forcing anything onto the front end for you. It's not forcing anything onto the onto the back end for you, like uh, you know, forcing you to use Ring or whatever or or uh, any specific kind of thing, right? Uh, good question. Now, um, actually, funny enough, I haven't used 
Uh, I haven't looked at Sempay in long enough that I can't even tell you whether there's officially a, a requirement <laughs> in Ring or not. I don't recall. You would need to check the documentation. Okay. Um, but it, certainly, uh, certainly it may... Th there is a may... requirement, yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there you go. Ray knows. Um, yeah. so, but, but, you so do, it... but you do support various uh, web servers, so that's good. Yeah, like HTTP yeah. kit or... Yeah, because yeah. they... Yeah, go on. Yeah. So, so I'm guessing it's probably, um, if I recall correctly, it would probably be something like a ring-compatible uh, web server, and then there, there's a protocol that, that servers can implement to kind of plug into that. And in that case, let's say, um, maybe that could even be abstracted away so that you, it's not dependent on ring exactly, but I think in closure, anyway, that the ship has sailed, ring is more or less one. Um, I'm not yeah. sure if there's any really, really viable... Um, widely deployed alternatives to at, at the ring level. So again, it's just mm -hmm. in my case, it wasn't worth time exploring because I, I didn't care. Um, but if somebody yeah. else is interested in that theoretically, maybe it's something that could be explored. I can't think of any logical reason why why it wouldn't be possible to work on something else. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, sorry, what was the question? And, and one for the front end as well, because we were talking about, you know, is there ah. any specific uh, dependencies yeah. that, that uh, yeah. So it, 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 Hmm. So it may force certain shapes on you a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't think of anything too concrete. I mean, in terms of the API, as far as any API forces anything on you, right? If you're going to be using yeah. this as a core part of your application, and usually yeah. something like Sente is used as a core part of the application, then you, are, you will find yourself naturally conforming a little bit to the API, that, uh, to the shape that the API is kind of encouraging you to take on. Um, yeah. Like I say, more importantly, the thing that often bites people is um, the stuff that's not immediately apparent. So again, if you're building a real-time web application, you need to be designing it for that purpose in mind, and you need to be thinking from day one, or, or at least thinking very logically at some point about what are the different things that can happen in a real-time web application in terms of your state and in terms of the, the business logic or the behavior of your application. And that's actually kind of a hard problem. I, I mean, it's not it's not classically hard, but it's something that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And if it's your first real-time web application or real-time application where kind of messages are going like this and there's, there's often a UI involved, let's say, um, it requires some deliberate thought because there are some decisions that you're going to have to make as an application developer that the library can't make for you because it's going to be entirely application dependent. And you need to be aware that messages can arrive out of order. They can arrive sometimes this one will arrive and then it won't arrive. And then, you know, message three out of a sequence of five will arrive because, you know, somebody was driving through a tunnel or their Wi-Fi was bad or they switched the device. There's all of these different kinds of things and you need to make sure, depending on your particular application, that you've more or less thought through the semantics of what it means to be doing real-time message processing in your particular application. And for some applications, it's pretty simple. For some applications, it looks deceptively simple, and then it ends up actually being quite complicated to make sure that you've kind of caught all the edge cases. Uh, but it depends as well what the risk factors are, right? Like if it's just an online game or something where it doesn't matter, then maybe some sort of semantic breakage is not that big of a deal. If it's something where you're dealing with important information and, and important decisions are being made based off of the uh, this common infrastructure, then you, you need to have your semantics right. I think what's what, to me what's interesting because I'm you know I, I mentioned to you before that I'm using Sente for this uh, this distributed shared REPL that I'm building um, mm -hmm. is that in terms of API the API is quite small um, in fact mm -hmm. there isn't really an API as far as I'm concerned because it just you just plug things in um, mm -hmm. and then you know, you have some kind of like model multi methods 
And then you write your, you know, you as a as a library, as a tool author or as an application developer, you basically write your own multi-methods on either side of the socket connection and just mm-hmm. route your data that way. So it seems mm-hmm. to be more about, almost more about like the data design in that respect. Um, yeah. At least that's how it feels to me, um, uh, that it's more about like the data that's going over the wire and coming back. Um, mm-hmm. then, then following a particular API that you've imposed on us, yeah. mm-hmm. which I really then, like, by the way, because I think that's using the power of, you know, it's not it's not constraining me mm-hmm. to say, okay, well, you must use these sockets in a certain way. You must get your data like this. You must get your data like that. No, um, mm-hmm. you know, I write the API essentially. Yep. So um, I think that was a nice observation about about it being mostly data centric. And let's say, I, I think that the API is, what there is of it is there to kind of support the conveyance of data in a way that's, that's useful. Mm-hmm. Um, like I say, the particular, the particular application design that you ultimately end up having or needing or wanting for a real-time webcom, um, that's something that, somebody, that you would need to think about from, from an application-to-application basis. And it may, it may have interactions with how the, the, the center API works. So it, the API as small as it is, let's say it gives you certain basic things, like I'm going to send this and not care about the results, or I'm going to send this and I want to look at the results and there's a timeout. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's very basic building blocks that it gives you. Yeah. And uh, the intention is that these building blocks kind of pave over the differences between between the particular protocols, so in this case, Ajax and and, um, and WebSockets. But uh, I, I guess it's, it's a little bit subjective to say, is that much of a, is that it, is that forcing much of a shape on you or not? I, I guess that's sort of debatable. Um, some of the aspects like how how identification, uh, user identification work, and things like um, how the how the keys work for identifying messages back and forth. You may find cases where, let's say, Sente can be a little bit opinionated. And for example, I've I've had cases before where people wanted to use it in applications where they wanted the user ID to be based off of um, something that didn't particularly fit well with the model that, that Sente was originally designed to support. And there can be times where you will sort of butt heads with it a little bit because it's it's fundamentally going up against the direction of, of the kinds of applications that I was intending to build with Sente. It can happen. So you won't encounter it, let's say, on the on the simple, on the basic stuff of, you know, this is the Send API, but you may encounter it on on... In, in deeper ways for of how things like identity work and, and how the application in general um, should be structured in order to make, like I say, sort of a, a conceptually sound real-time application. So there, there, may be, there may be pushing from the library to conform to a certain kind of shape, but in my case, I would argue that most of that pushing is actually healthy because most of the time when that pushing isn't happening, people haven't even realized they need to be in a particular shape because it's not apparent at that point that there's a reason they really have a serious think about um, adopting a shape of, of some kind or another to deal with things like identity. Because mm-hmm. again, sometimes these things, when you get started, they seem kind, kind of simple, but when you actually dig into the details and you, you, you dig into uh, the nuances of like how browsers actually communicate and how it works with tabs and different devices and things like this. It, it, it occasionally it um, it will encourage you to go down a certain road and it will sort of provide a specific path that that offers least resistance. 
if that if that kind of made sense. That was a bit of a, a rambling answer. <laughs> no, no, no. I fell asleep. Sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> <laughs> sensei is great. You sensei. You sensei, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, there, I know the the whole business about um, authentication and logging in and all that kind of stuff. I, I see on the, on the chat that there's a little bit of um, contention there, let's say. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're going to inevitably, you know, and what you what you do in, and it's interesting to me what you where you've done it is you've essentially said, look, you can log in via Ring or you can log in via WebSockets, and then if it's WebSockets, you're on your own, make it up um, using this sort of technique, and if you're using Ring, then it's just a standard middleware, um, mm -hmm. and that was the only thing that I thought was a bit odd was like you essentially hide some of the data under some atoms that are only read-only, you know, so like mm -hmm. user, mem like user membership and stuff like that. That's the, that's the only thing. Yeah, it was, I think in the end you're right. It was just something which I hadn't expected that there mm -hmm. was sort of hidden behind the API, that it was some data structure that you took care of and I mm -hmm. couldn't have a, an input on. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is the biggest source of contention with with Zenpan, I would say that it's yeah. it's one of the it's one of the bifurcation points um, where you would ideally decide whether you use something like Sente or not. Because again, Sente took a very particular direction to send it to solve particular kinds of problems. And mm. by making certain assumptions, it could make lots of lots of simplifications or, or at least provide lots of support in direction A. But so that direction is inherently in opposition to some of the other kinds of applications you may want to build in direction B. And um, for, for things like, um, you know, like, for example, a, a request that I get quite often is, um, I, I would like to be able to send a message to a specific client ID, not to a user, but to a client, right? Mm -hmm. And there's long posts on, on GitHub about sort of what the pros and cons of that are and why, why the library has, has more or less rejected the notion of being able to do that at the client ID level. Um, and I understand that might be frustrating because sometimes people want to kind of send to a client. But in general, again, it's been my experience that when I've seen these things in the wild, nine times out of 10, um, the desire to want to go in that direction is an indication that it ha you haven't properly thought out how this is actually going to work properly. And you're going to end up regretting this decision at some point. So I would normally try to reverse the the kind of mental model and say, look, if you've got something where you want to have a particular response to a particular client, try to initiate the request from the client, because that way you can use the basic API and get all the all the mm. sort of um, anyway, it, it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a long story. But suffice it to say, there is certainly a different design choice that could have been made there. And that might make sense in certain applications. But at least in my experience, I I'm not convinced that I've ever actually seen um, a use case where I've been fully convinced had a strong argument for wanting to go this direction or the, 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 the opposing direction. Um, every use case I've seen where people had the inclination to want to go this way um, on sitting down with them and actually working through the design, we both concluded afterwards that this, that the, the, the direction that it kind of encourages you to go actually made more sense. It just required a bit of a mental, mental um, yeah. rework of the, of the situation. But it could totally happen. I can't exclude the possibility that there may exist some application that would actually be better fit for mm -hmm. say, sending something to the, to the client ID level. And if that comes and if somebody can suggest that, then we could maybe open up the API to do that. Or indeed, I think you could have another library do that. Um, mm -hmm. I think that it's important that people use something that kind of fits 
um, fits their particular use case. I mean, I think the, an example of that for me was where I, I'm evaluating something in my, in my REPL locally, but I want other people to be aware of it. So mm -hmm. on, I send it over the network to be evaluated, and then mm -hmm. the server side evaluates it, and it basically broadcasts the results. Um, mm -hmm. And in theory, it could broadcast it to the other clients and not to me. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, in practice, what I did is I just well, yeah, I just I just ignore it. If it if I if I know I'm the the producer of that message, I can just drop it because I've already mm -hmm. got it. So that turned out to be a much simpler solution, in fact, where mm -hmm. I can just say, okay, I'm initiating the action, and everyone gets the result. And then mm -hmm. if you're not interested in it, you just drop it. Yeah. And and that turned out to be a much simpler model. And I guess that's probably what you, where you're coming from as well. That this is. This is a good example, um, and there's there's trade-offs. As in the example you mentioned, obviously one of the disadvantages is that you're now broadcasting to clients maybe that are intending to drop it, right? So you're wasting bandwidth, you're wasting time. Um, but I know it's like only a, one. I know it's only yeah. one, or you know, <laughs> out, out of out of four or out of four hundred, it's only one that's going to drop it. So it, ah, that's okay, a, you know. okay, yeah. So in in that in that case, it's it sounds like that's a there's pretty close, um, pretty close. Um, a pretty accurate example of what I what I had in mind. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, if you're going to send it out and then half of the population is going to drop it, then yeah, it's maybe it's a bit more tricky. But then I think the other the other problem is that if you how do you register your interest? Then you, you you're putting some some filter on the server side. Then stored mm -hmm. procedure styley, you know. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. Yeah, it all it all gets a bit uh, funky. Yeah, like you say, it's a general purpose library. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, the honest answer is uh, I actually don't even recall exactly what some of the design the design trade-offs were from this thing because it's mm. been a long time since I've looked at that and I deal with so many different things. I I, I couldn't even remember where the ring ring was re <laughs> was a requirement for the library. <laughs> um, so normally what happens in these cases is if somebody if it comes up that it's somehow relevant, I'll kind of look at the issue again. I'll refresh mm. my memory of sort of what yeah. all the trade-offs are and what the what the reasons were. I I don't have it cached at the moment. Um, but certainly, I remember having having had this experience before with with clients where there was a, a feeling to want to kind of go in a particular direction, and I, I have gone through it several times where when we actually evaluated what the what the semantics were, we always found edge cases where there were problems in going in the direction that seemed attractive on the surface, um, and ultimately we decided to go with something simpler, which was kind of what Sente was encouraging. But again, I absolutely don't I don't exclude the possibility that there may be some case where that won't make sense, where some other approach um, would, would be preferable. I just, I don't have the, enough of the details in my head at the moment mm -hmm. to, to sort of clearly talk about what I anticipate those those cases might be or what the trade-offs would actually be. I need to look at it. I think what's nice about it, though, from my perspective, to, to get back to the sort of concrete positives, is mm -hmm. that you know you can choose the, um, the 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 data structures in a very way in a way that's very nice for closure. You know you can mm -hmm. put like Eden or Transit on the wire. Um, it's very easy to parse that data. Then um, it's easy to to sort of from an API perspective. You know I'm kind of I kind of spent a long time like you were saying before about kind of like absolutes. People went. Soap for a few years, and then ah, it's terrible. And then it went rest. And now you know because Netscape and uh, Facebook, uh, Netscape, Net Netflix and Facebook don't like um, Netscape. Netscape. I was, I was there for a while. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but the uh, you know when uh, Netflix and Facebook said that uh, rest was terrible, everyone ah yes GraphQL that's what we need to do, you know so mm-hmm. you know but but what's interesting you know I I did rest for a long time I didn't do much stuff with WebSockets before um, mm-hmm. so this is my first big web app, WebSocket application big not very big but but you know first proper investigation into that rather than a theory. Um, and I'm finding WebSockets a real pleasure to use actually with this tech. I think if you're, if you're, you know, if you're doing kind of bits, bits manipulation, if you're, if it's all binary stuff, I imagine WebSockets are horrible, but using it over with Sente over closure, it's so easy. It's so much actually nicer than a REST API because you're just talking, you know, message passing, which is, which is really nice. You know, I'm not talking about RPC here, you know, just here's some data, do with it what you want. Yeah. And then on like on a reframe side, you just look at the data and say, okay, that's, that's a, this type of data, that's that type of data, put it in the database, trigger some event and the UI does something magical, you know, and it's all good. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it has been a big pleasure and I've used it a lot for, again, a lot of work I do is, is prototyping applications Mm -hmm. and it's, it's been a joy for that because you can get started so quickly. And like you say, it's, it's a good fit for things like, um, like React, the reagent, whatever particular library you're using, you're just passing data back and forth like this. And it's, it's, for me, it's been a source of, of significant productivity um, mm. for some real applications to be able to do, do message passing like this. Um, I, I found it quite, quite enjoyable. Okay, so I think we can talk about one more library. <laughs> <laughs> I know I said three, but obviously, you know, there, there are plenty of... Bonus library, one, because... one more library. One more thing. <laughs> Just one more thing. Yeah. yeah one more thing. thing. We're going to have to have a, another show in a, in a, a year or of so. Course. You know, Se- secret announcement. recovered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about your um, uh, goals for trust. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. The, trust. it seems like, you know, a kind of sort of spec but not really but you know so what what is it and what what is the idea behind it and where are you okay. taking to the, taking this one to okay so trust i actually think is is probably my most interesting library um and i i think it it it's a bit of a strange one because i think in some ways um it's one of my favorites um but it's not very well known and it's not very very widely used and it came along at a bit of a strange time at least it was a published published at a bit of a strange time so Trust, um, for anyone who doesn't know, is um, I kind of describe it as, as basically an invariance library for closure. And um, what I mean by that is essentially it's a way of making, um, making assertions in your code base about invariance in, in your system, in your code at that, at that point in time. Like you mentioned, it's, it, there's some, let's say, functionality overlap with things like um, closure.spec and um, schema. So it was a quick quick history. So I mentioned before that I started using Clojure way back when, like already version, you know, I think 0.9, something like that. Um, that I that I already had at that point like a large a large production application um, going. And we were talking earlier about things that we like or dislike about various tools. One of the things that I I found at that time challenging about Clojure was the dynamic typing. Um, and in general, I actually tend to have a preference towards towards um, strong static typing in general. Um, mm-hmm. the, again, there's trade-offs, and I, I think if you kind of use them with your eyes open, closure closure gives you a lot of uh, a lot of leverage to let's say minimize the pain from this. But anyway, um, 
I had some production applications where the dynamic typing enclosure was really hurting me on an ongoing basis. It was causing problems, it was causing lost productivity. And I noticed that um, when I was consulting, it was occurring very, very often as well in, in, uh, in the wild. So the same kinds of problems that I was running in with my larger applications, I was observing a lot in client applications in places where I've kind of been called in to help with the code base or a struggling project of some kind. And it basically boiled down to a lack of um, a lack of ability to convey semantically some of the invariants that we have in our system. So, like a type system is one obvious way of doing this in 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 one way to say, well, okay, this argument is an integer, the return type is a whatever. Um, yeah. In practice, what I noticed in Closure was. Most people didn't experience this pain because most people were running small projects, right? If you have a thousand lines of code or four thousand lines of code, this, the, the dynamic typing doesn't bother you at all. It's fine. You don't even notice it because yeah. the program is so small. You have the whole thing in your head, and especially if you're writing writing closure in in I don't want to say exactly in the idiomatic way, but in a way that closure encourages you to write, where you tend to have um, nicely decoupled systems and so on. You can actually get pretty far in building real large uh, closure applications. Uh, while being able to retain the whole thing in your head, uh, in the whole thing in your head, because even if there's lots of concepts, the, the way that they kind of compose is nice and clear, so it's, it's easy to um, stick a lot in there. Um, but ultimately, every closure project, I think, that gets big enough at some point becomes becomes large enough that there is part of the code that like you haven't seen in six months or a year, and mm. it's it's complex. And in particular, when you have applications which have complex business logic, so like mm. a lot of applications which I was working on, which were um, highly mathematical, which we're dealing with a lot of like complicated algorithmic stuff, it becomes really, really difficult um, to keep track, right? I'm making the refactoring of this thing over here, and I, I think that I recall that this or it's covered in the unit test sort of, but it wasn't exactly completely specific. Or, um, I mean, famously, one of the things that Clojure is, is uh, a bit of a sore spot for people is its error messages, right? And this comes, yeah. again, everything pros and cons being on the Don't day beyond. the error messages. <laughs> Um, yeah, but being on the JVM <laughs> is, <closure. laughs> is wonderful and a wonderful source of, of productivity and leverage. But you know, the fact that Clojure is also implemented on all this book underneath makes you know, the error messages. I, I mean, I'm not sure if that's the only reason, but certainly that's one of the reasons why the error messages are can be so opaque. And um, one of the things that I noticed was on my first on my own project and then also in in, um, in the consulting was. When there's errors in production, in closure, sometimes they are so maddeningly difficult to debug because you get some funny stack trace in some little function in the middle of nowhere and it says it's a null pointer exception or it says there's some whatever ridiculous stack trace that, again, yes. very often at the times where you're supposed to be debugging these things, money is being burnt and there is, there is urgency to try to get a solution and it's incredibly frustrating when the amount of information you get out of the, the system is so so small and or so um, so unhelpful. Um, anyway, so at that time already, this is way back when, this is before schema, this is before anything else, I, I wrote a little library, so at the time just a set of utilities, um, yeah. which I started using for myself to cover two use cases. Number one, refactoring, and number two, um, basically the, this case I described with like issues in production. So when you're writing some code, um, what I found was, particularly for large code, while you have it in your head, and it's clear, in particular, it's clear how different pieces connect, you have certain understanding of how, let's say, assumptions which are 
implicit to you at the time that you're writing the code, but aren't explicit in the code either because they're, they're minor and they're not a part of the public API or it's something within a function um, or it's something about how this component relates to that component. And trying to keep this stuff documented and trying to keep it all sort of in a way, let's say covered by the unit tests or something else which is actually reified in, in the code so that it's under revision control and it's, it's there as, as, as part of, um, as part of the, the contract of the code is tricky. And like I explained, uh, I've got a video on, on the trust library where I kind of go into some examples of where, where this comes up. But essentially, your choices are things like doc strings or it's something like core.typed or closure.spec didn't exist at the time. Um, but basically, there were various tools for doing this. And for me, none of them kind of felt immediate enough. Um, meaning, I, I'm typing some code. And in my head, at the time that I'm typing the code, I have some particular invariant in mind. I know, for example, that as a trivial example, this is going to be a vector. Or more interestingly, let's say that the state is in a particular position. So if we're talking about like real-time web communications, these are the kinds of like edge cases. I'm getting message X. Um, and my expectation is at the time that I've got the message X, either condition A or condition B are holding, or something about the user state, or something about the connection state, or something about how these components relate. Again, it's, it's a bit difficult to give examples in abstract, um, right? So obviously, uh, Clojure had preconditions for a long time. So what kind yeah. of, what, 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 what didn't you like about that? Awesome question, okay. So Clojure had um, preconditions and it also has assertions. You can just do a search on any particular state. So there's a few things I dislike about both of those. Number one is that the error messages are useless. So if I have a function and I say the precondition is... <laughs> just tell it how it is, okay. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it, is, it is the case. Um, no, preconditions yeah. don't solve this problem. Preconditions give you the ability to throw an error that's just as useless as the other errors that you would get, right? Um, it, it will throw something like, with a function over here was expecting a vector, but it actually got a set. Uh, excuse me. Um, you'll have a precondition like the input to this function is a vector. And it will say, okay, that didn't happen. The precondition failed. At that point, you've got no other information. You don't understand why it failed. You don't understand what the input was for the function. You don't even know what the data type was that wasn't a set or that wasn't a vector, right? So we're expecting it to be a vector. That wasn't the case. It threw an error, but you've got no other information to work over. And again, if that happens in production, or even if that happens in development in a large complex program, you're going to end up spending a bunch of time trying to track down. Yes, the precondition has helped um, enforce uh, uh, an invariant, but it hasn't helped you when that invariant is actually violated. It hasn't helped you very much actually debug or understand what was the state of the program that caused this particular invariant to be violated. So it will say, wasn't a vector. Cool. But now, if that happens in production in a function and you're looking at the function and you're looking at the consumers and it looks like all the consumers are being called with a vector, how is this happening? Clearly there's some yeah. sort of an edge case happening somewhere that somebody's calling it with something that's not a vector. But is it nil? Is it a set? Is it a string? That would be helpful to debug because if you know what is the invalid value that's getting into this thing, it gives you an enormous amount of context to try and guess where is it actually coming into the system. When you, when you know that the invariant's failing but you don't know how or why, it's, it's again, when you're lucky, maybe you might have a hunch. When you're not lucky or when you're under time pressure, and in particular when it's a large program, it's not, it's not very useful. So one of the primary mm -hmm. motivations behind trust was just to fix this particular issue. Um, and theoretically, this could be fixed in Clojure 4, actually. This, there's no reason this couldn't already be done, um, which is when there's an inviolation, provide as much contextual information as possible. 
right? Provide line numbers, namespace, provide the forms that are going in, provide the values that are going in. So if, for example, I'm doing an invariant to say this value is a vector, right? And it triggers, it triggers a, a, a warning, it triggers an error in trust. Trust will tell you, no, this failed. It will show you the, the, the actual predicate function that failed. It will show you the input. It will show you the data type of the input. And it will allow you to attach any arbitrary context to that error message. So it gives you a lot of error, a lot of information in the error. And again, this is not mm -hmm. sexy stuff. It's not that complicated. It's just attaching a little bit more information. But even basic stuff, like just what was the value that didn't satisfy the condition is just massive time waste when you don't have that. Mm -hmm. um, so providing this information just to things like, let's say, improving the preconditions or improving the postconditions is was already useful. Uh, but more importantly, um, or, or, or let's say to, to kind of generalize this notion, preconditions and postconditions are about the public API of functions, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's about it's about what's coming in and what's going out, and that stuff is of course very very important. And arguably, it's sort of the the, the most important thing. But um, as a programmer, again, when your programs get really bigger and bigger, especially ones that are logically complex, um, there are more there are more invariants that you have in mind than the particular API contract of functions, right? Within the function body of a particular thing, you may, within the function body, be making certain assumptions, either about the state of the world or about different systems or even about the flow of a particular program. For example, mm -hmm. right, you're, you're working with something and you've got a left binding and over here you're pulling whatever, you're pulling something out of a set and three lines later, while you're writing the program, you know that there's no way that this value can be nil, right? Because you know logically you just put it in over there two lines earlier. So between here and here, like if you look at these 10 lines of code, there's no way that this value over here can be, can be nil. Cool. But the thing is, now you save this code and it goes into production and six months later, somebody else is working on this code and they're refactoring it. And because you're working in, it's not uncommon, uh, some sort of a situation where let's say the features are changing very often, you've got a prototype and stuff is, Stuff is quite dynamic. Again, it's one of the benefits of closure is that the, the, dyna uh, the, the dynamic um, language allows you to kind of play with your ideas over time. So inevitably you do that. Um, and somebody is refactoring this function or changing this function and they skim this thing or they're reading it and they miss the fact that actually this is supposed to be non, uh, uh, this can't be nil at this point. And they end up passing it to another function where um, that's a problem. Basically, when you first wrote the function, you had an implicit assumption of some kind in your head that you thought was self-evident while you were looking at the code. But some time, some, uh, some time passes, something changes, and somebody else is looking at the code, they refactor it. And since it wasn't explicitly documented that this, there's this particular invariant on the value, um, somebody maybe makes a, makes a change now, which seems to work 90% of the time, but has introduced a possible edge case to something, because now when these three conditions hold some weird case that isn't covered by the unit test, there's now a, a nil value in here, which gets passed to a system, which throws an exception, which says null pointer exception with no other information. Um, so anyway, what, what Truff allows you to do, and again, just purely dog fooding here with solving issues that I was having and, and that clients were having, um, I found it massively valuable to just be able to, in, uh, to assert inline um, and say, I'm, I'm asserting inline at this particular point that this form is going to be non-nil, or I'm asserting that this particular form um, is a vector, or I'm asserting that this particular value is bigger than that particular value, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And again, it's, it's a bit difficult to, to give re realistic examples um, in abstract, because the place where I find this useful is in real applications, right? Where you have actual significant business logic of some kind, 
Um, and that doesn't convey well to kind of toy examples. It's, it's a little bit difficult to articulate. Like a lot of people might hear this and think, ah, I don't have a need for that. I've never seen a need for something like mm -hmm. this. And that's, that would be completely true because they might not have had these kinds of situations where you have substantial business logic um, inside the functions. But when you do, I found it invaluable to be able to make assertions on the state of your program as it's running inside at any particular point. So trust will always return um, when, when the invariant passes, it will return the inputs that you put in. So if you say this is a string and it's true, it just it, it flows through and it gives you the string. So you can kind of just insert these things in line. Um, and what I noticed is since I started doing that in my own programs and in, um, in client applications, our, our error rates dropped substantially down and mm -hmm. our time spent maintaining and debugging stuff actually went substantially down. Um, mm -hmm. Just this one small thing in, in a few little places here and there, um, because, because I noticed how much, like disproportionately, how much time debugging was actually spent on these just stupid things. Like sometimes something could have just been codified as, as part of the code, some sort of an invariant, um, and if it's violated, to just provide a really good error message with as much possible, with as much context as possible. That stuff sounds stupid. It's, uh, it's not sexy, but it saves enormous amounts of time, at, at least in my experience. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, so this was way back when I started using this. Then after that, at some point, um, schema came along um, and people were using schema. I, I never published um, the early version of Trust. And people were using schema and, and finding use in schema. Then obviously now closure uh, spec um, has come out. And I, I think that that's also really interesting. And I think in general, mm -hmm. I would sort of encourage people to look in that direction. Um, it's not entirely obvious to me yet that, um, that closure.spec has completely obviated the need, at least for me, or, or the value of something like trust. I, I tend, still tend to use trust myself. Um, I use it for different reasons, right? Like spec, I find really good for Defining like uh, uh, data structures and um, API level contracts, and in particular, I love the um, I, I really appreciate the, the the fact that you kind of get to leverage the syntax to do several things, including things like the generate uh, the, the generating and the doc strings. And the, yeah, it, it's yeah, wonderful yeah. leverage, and I think it was a really good a good design and a good idea for a core language thing. Like if you were going to design something like this uh, at, at, for the core of the language, I think it was it was very nicely done, and it offers a really really good good balance of functionality for for um for the cost as it were um but so still the error messages are not ideal um i think this is something that can be fixed but also people keep saying that it's going to get fixed and you know ultimately needs to get fixed at some point um yeah. and also i never found it quite as uh, comfortable for me for inline assertions which i find is still sort of a bit of a sweet spot for trust so like i i, I um Trust has a bunch of little things for like destructuring. If you have several, I want to, for example, I'm, I'm going to say I have these values and they're non-nil, and then you provide three, three or four different symbols, and if they all pass, it gives you back uh, a thing in a vector, so you can just destructure them. Um, so there's little syntactic things like this, which, again, syntax is not the most important thing in general. I, I rarely find it sort of an interesting argument to say, you know, language X is better because the syntax is nice. Your syntax, I mean, doesn't really matter that much. But in this particular case, I actually find that syntax is, is important because um, arguably people could just be documenting things, right? And they could just be putting comments in their code. Um, but the trouble with comments is, you know, because 
because it's a comment, it's not being run by the compiler. It's not being checked. It tends to go it tends to go stale. People forget to update it. People are also lazy about it. Um, so what I found very useful with the with the trust syntax was it was terse enough and expressive enough that in my experience people would actually use it. And I used it, and, and people that I was that I worked with actually used it, and they enjoyed using it, and they found um, I, I guess they found that the overall net expense of annotating a couple forms here and there was more than easily paid for by by um, by the advantages and so they were inclined to do it and they did it happily and it wasn't something that you kind of had to force on people that's a, that's a really long answer but i think the nice thing about <laughs> it though peter i mean is the is that again it's like conceptual overhead is quite small Mm -hmm. um, you know, you write, have something, and then you're pretty much done, you know? So you're not buying into a very big API or, a, you know, and also like like a really good DSL, it blends perfectly well in and composes well with all the other predicates, which is kind of the thing about spec as well, which is, you know, that's one of the advantages of spec is you just use language predicates, and that's one of the advantages of trust as well. So, you know, you saw that, and I think that's really, that's really a, a great insight. Um, because doing something where, you know, you have to essentially replicate all of the core predicates like core type mm -hmm. did, then you're kind of, you know, it's, you're on a, a, a losing horse, I think, because it's a, it's a different language at that point. Whereas what you're doing is you're just saying, okay, well, there's just one very small thing that can help you to assert stuff. And here it is, which yeah. I, you know, I think is really... I, I agree. I mean, I think it's a really nice, useful library with a very low conceptual overhead, but quite a lot of payback. You know, maybe it's not as much leverage as spec, but then the, the overhead for using it is also incredibly low. Yeah. So in, in general, um, you'll notice a theme in a lot of my thinking and a lot of my libraries as well, which is just... Um, I tend to approach things uh, certainly with the, the, the published open source just from a from a practical point of view, right? Because mm -hmm. in general, my interest is not actually in the programming. My interest isn't in making nice tools or hacking on this stuff because I find it enjoyable. I do find it enjoyable, but ultimately I do stuff because I have a project that I want to build or mm -hmm. I'm trying to get something else done as quickly as possible. And the way that I can get back to that product as quickly as possible um, is kind of my motivation. So for a lot of these things like with trust, I found a solution that worked for me, that fits, that let me decrease the time spent in maintenance and the time spent in debugging. And what I can say is ultimately in my case, um, purely subjectively, but after using something like Trust and kind of getting the grips of where, the, the sort of developing an aesthetic for where to use it, the problems that I had with closure being dynamically typed completely went away. Um, mm. I, I no longer miss um, my static typing from closure. And in fact, I actually now feel pretty um, pretty satisfied at the overall balance that I get between the dynamic typing and the ability to to express invariants. And in particular, I like the fact that um, invariants are in general uh, are a more general concept than just uh, typing, right? Because mm -hmm. typing again, yes. the easiest examples to to sort of share are typing to say this is a vector, this is a string, but those aren't actually the most interesting things I think in practice. Um, the kinds of invariants that I find useful in production are, again, business logic things. Mm. And mm. again, providing information to say, all right, this, you know, this statistical function, whatever, this is supposed to be bigger than this under these, and expressing that as an invariant and then attaching, uh, attaching debug information for when that invariant doesn't hold. It's just, I, I really cannot overstate how much time this has saved me. It saved so much time. 
to be able to do this. And again, you, you often, I often haven't needed it in many places, but in the few places where it's valuable, the, the value is just outstanding. And composing predicates like this is so easy compared to, you know, uh, the, 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 the higher kind of typing system that you would need to do a similar thing in a more, mm -hmm. you know, a more type oriented language. You know, you can yep. just express a bunch of predicates in not even one line, you know, well, it is a line, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a short yep. line. Um, yep. <clears throat> yeah, yep. it's really nice. The best thing, yeah. best thing with this one is that, you know, you, you can just use as much as you want. It's not forcing yeah. the entire yeah. program to be, mm -hmm. you know, uh, following certain uh, design or following certain types. So yeah. you can, you can just put in, okay, here, this is the most critical part of my code. So I'm going to put in something here that is going to get maximum value out of that one instead of doing uh, a large upfront uh, design. Yeah. And obviously the thing is you can you can you can have you can have spec and you can have truss, you know, the two things are not exactly. incompatible. In fact they're completely composable. Uh they're completely uh what's the phrase? <laughs> yeah. They they can coexist yeah. happily. Yeah. Yeah, right. exactly. and to be clear, absolutely. I I think that you you truss would be a terrible spec. Trust doesn't do what yeah, spec does. Yeah, yeah, if, you, yeah, if you're if yeah. you talking about like data structures and things like mm -hmm. this, spec is great and uh, there's you you wouldn't use trust for that. No. Um, mm -hmm. So I think actually for me, one of the nice things, the, the release of spec helped, helped clarify for me actually what are the boundaries of what I enjoy about trust and mm -hmm. where, where um, I, I guess it helped clarify the boundaries a little bit anyway for, for what I was actually looking for from it because I noticed in myself, where was I still reaching for it versus um, versus other tools. But ultimately, something yeah. that I, I really like about Clojure um, in general, like we were talking earlier on about, you know, it's a list, that's cool, but the things about Clojure also extend a lot. There's there's more nuances about Clojure that I think make it really attractive. And one of the things mm -hmm. that I really appreciate about Clojure in general is that it tends to be uh, a craftsman's language, right? It's practical. Mm -hmm. um, it's mostly functional, but it doesn't force you to be functional in all cases. It's mostly immutable, but it acknowledges that sometimes you want to be able to mutate things. It's, you know, it, 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 it strikes a practical balance, recognizing that people sometimes need to get stuff done and we're just trying to achieve a mission here. And um, yeah. a, a way that I would put that is um, Jonathan Blow um, has a nice way of putting this, which is, um, so he's developing a programming language at the moment, which is really, really interesting. And I'd encourage anyone who's interested in sort of low level languages to check it out. Jonathan Blow um, is working on a language called Jai, J-A-I, the most interesting programming language product uh, project going on at the moment, in, in my opinion. Anyway, um, one of the things that he's doing with his language that I, I also appreciate is it's not a big ideas language, as he would put it, right? It's not trying to make it impossible to throw, you know, to have a null pointer exception. It's not making it impossible to, it, because these super sophisticated pipe systems, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I found it interesting when, when Rich released transducers and everybody was trying to sort of um, provide the type signature, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 for transducers. Yeah. And yeah. like, I, I think that it's also possible to go too far. Um, and again, this is purely subjective. I don't think there's a right or a wrong. It, it's a matter of taste and it's a matter of what you're trying to do. But for me, my particular taste is I'm interested in stuff that gets the job done. And um, for me, like a, a full on type system would take away a lot of the joy that I feel in closure. And I think actually a lot of the benefit um, that, that I get from it is being a dynamically typed language. And I get a lot of leverage from the fact that it's dynamically typed. And again, it's, it's for these reasons that I've, I've done a lot of work in like prototyping enclosure, because it's, it's awesome. Um, 
But then because also it's a list and you can write macros, you can plug on something like this where you get to do a little bit of just reinforcement at the edges that you care about when, when you need. And I, I find that, that that's a really nice balance. Mm. Okay, cool. I think we are, uh... <laughs> oh, of course, I mean, there are, there are lots of things to talk about, obviously, but, you know, we can, uh, we should probably um, uh, take, make it a two-parter at some point, you know, we, we need to come back and then discuss Mm -hmm. most uh most things and i'm really curious about uh i mean th this has been fantastic i mean we discussed a lot of uh things so um i think we can uh call it a wrap mm -hmm. um uh, peter thanks a lot for for joining us uh and you know uh giving us your time and uh, describing a lot of uh, awesome things that that you're working on mm -hmm. uh i learned um, uh, you know, she a lot of things today, <laughs> and of course, I'll I'll take a look at the Jai language as well. That's uh, I've never heard of it, so I'm I'm really curious about uh, you know I'm I'm trying to follow like learn one new language every year sort of shit for for some time. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm my rust is a bit rusty right now, so I'm I'm on rust now. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, hopefully next year uh, you know I'll pick up something else. But anyway, uh, again, uh, thanks a lot for 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 all of your all, all your time, and uh, of course you know fantastic libraries. Um, for the people who are listening out there, um, maybe you're already using his libraries. So go to his website and click on the back uh, button. Uh, not the back button, but back me up button. <laughs> the back button. Don't use them. Don't use the library. <laughs> Please don't be angry with me if they're not working correctly. I'm not responsible. Go to, go to his I, I just website and do not click the back button, but click back me up or uh, how do you call this in English? I mean, Patreon. Yeah, <laughs> Patre no, not Patreon. Ah, uh, uh, yes. support me. Yes, become a yes, backer. Support me, exactly. Become a backer of his okay. amazing or the back amazing button. work or the back button. That's fine too. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think that's it from us uh, today. Um, mm -hmm. Again, um, uh, it was uh, fantastic to have you uh, online today. Thank you very much, and thank you for for being patient with my my rambling opinionated <laughs> conceptual no, 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 answer. No, no, no. No, we love it. This, we this love is it. exactly why we do it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank uh, you both. So a quick uh, uh, shout out to the things. Um, the I things. Think, uh, <laughs> yes, the the regular <laughs> shit. I mean, this is the weird part. I mean, the oh, thing yeah, that we okay. do in every show. I keep I keep forgetting what I'm supposed to do. Um, uh, all the music uh, coming from Pizzeri. Uh, he's a P T Z E R Y um, on on SoundCloud. Uh, go and uh, like his music. Uh, I'm not sure if he's making any new tracks or anything, uh, but um, I keep listening. And um, all the hard work of uh, making us uh, sound better is being done by Wouter Dullard from uh, Belgium. Uh, he's been, he's been uh, doing uh, awesome work and helping us a lot. And um, of course, we are also on Patreon. So if you want us to retire sooner and then, you know, buy our own yacht and shit and go there and give us, uh, give us your money. Um, and then we'll put your name on our yacht. Uh, yeah, that would be good. Yeah. <laughs> is that a promise? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna put that on my sponsored by him, yeah. or at least a paper, or at least a paperboard at some point. Um, that's it from us. Uh, this is episode number 36 with Peter Tosanis. Um, thanks a lot. Thank you, Vijay. Thank you, Ray. Absolute pleasure.